Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host and visiting instructor at the University of Pittsburgh. Today, I'll be speaking with Farina King. Dr. King is Assistant Professor of History and affiliate of the Cherokee and Indigenous Studies Department at Northeastern State University in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. We'll be discussing her new book, The Earth Memory Compass, Diné Landscapes and Education in the 20th Century, which came out with the University of Kansas Press in October of 2018. Welcome to the podcast, Farina. Thank you for having me. I always like to begin here on the New Books in the American West channel by hearing a little bit about the author themselves. So can you give us a little bit about your background, how you became interested in history, and maybe the path that you took to where you are today? Sure. First of all, I learned from my uncle, Jeje Albert Smith, about my clans. Uh, as we say in Navajo, kinship is very important. And that's a central part of introducing ourselves. That's how we would connect with family and show, in a sense, our positionality and where we come from. And so I'll do that briefly. Um, so I just said there that we first introduce our mother's uh, heritage. I descend from white settlers, mainly of uh, English American background, who lived in Michigan. That's my mom's side, Joanne Smith. And um, my dad's side of the family, he is Towering House Clan and born for the Black Streaked Woods People clan of Navajo Nation. We call ourselves Dene. And I am born for my father and those clans. And that makes me a woman, makes me a person in a sense. We also say where we were born. That is important. Often people ask um, traditionally in Navajo the way to ask where you're from. And I talk about it in my book was where was your uh, your umbilical cords buried. And Navajos, we believe there's that ongoing connection with the umbilical cord and the family would take it very seriously where they place your umbilical cord. Do they put it by the corral to, you know, draw you to livestock? Do they put it by the hogan, the home dwelling to, you know, always have you connected to home? Um, and my dad, when I was presenting at Tuba City, where I was born, Tonanez Dizze, as we say in Navajo, um, he told the, the people there at the chapter meeting, I had to speak at different chapter meetings as a key part of this research and my research, and introduce myself, say where I'm from. He, he would tell them, her umbilical cords are buried here. And they said, oh, that's why you're coming back. That's why you keep coming back. (laughs) Because um, though I was born on the Navajo reservation in Tuba City, um, my dad's a physician, worked for Indian Health Services for many years, and now he's uh, working for Navajo Nation in Monument Valley. Um, I mostly had my schooling in Maryland, in Montgomery County. It's the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. So I had this mixed childhood and youth experience of having these connections to Navajo lands, as we say, Dene Bekeya, and uh, to the city and to suburbia and a lot of, uh, you know, the woods and greenlands of the East Coast and the D.C. area because my dad got involved with uh, IHS administration there. And that kind of confused me, I will have to admit, because we still had most of my dad's family who were very close to 
in New Mexico around, they're from what we call checkerboard area, but um, my dad was from Rehoboth, New Mexico. Seyanichi is in Navajo and also family in Bajalina, which is Red Springs, New Mexico. And we'd always go back, visit, you know, and I had those very vivid, strong memories of playing with horny toads as a young child and seeing my family and those connections, but then going to the city where I was the only Native American that I knew of in my classes and met people who were shocked that I was Native American, that we still exist, you know, not extinct. Hmm. So that was really um, what drew me into the questions about what does it mean to be Native and Dene more um, specifically. And I started to talk to my elders, like Albert Smith, and um, he, I learned as a young child, was a Navajo code talker. And my history teacher in high school, when she found that out, I just thought, yeah, that's cool, you know. But she's like, no, got excited, <laughs> and you got to interview him, you got to talk to him. And, and also, my other uncle, the brothers, um, George and Albert, their brothers, George was also a code talker. And I have a great uncle who was a co-talker, um, Wilson Skeet. And so I have the these very interesting, significant connections to a lot of history that drew me in because I realized, hey, this is interesting. I do want to know. And my uncle Albert was the first to be willing to sit down with me and talk with me. I was only like 16 when I started to interview him, started to write papers about Navajo co-talker history, World War II history. And... American history and Navajo history. And he began with telling me about um, his childhood days, his youth, and also going to boarding school. Uh, At some point, he went to Crown Point Indian boarding school and how he was punished for speaking Navajo, um, how he had to speak to rocks and sticks to continue using his language. And that struck me because at first I was expecting, oh, going here hear these war stories and different things. But he's like, no, you know, he he had ceremony <clears throat> and certain um, protocol to follow of what he could talk about. So he actually emphasized a lot more his life outside of the war, beyond the war, which of course was the majority of his life as well, right? The war is not all that defined him. And the boarding school story really hit me because I then was struck by that irony of the punishment, the belittling of the Nefizad, the Navajo language and culture in many ways. Um, And then this turn to and dependence on the language in the context of World War II as an unbreakable military code in the Pacific arena that my uncle relied on to save his life and many other Americans, American citizens. And um, that, those questions started brewing. And then I realized, hey, my dad went to boarding school. How did that affect him? How has it affected me? What are the intergenerational impacts and trauma that I found out too about um, Navajo boarding school experiences. So this is all that got me excited about. Different directions, I think, exploring myself and the world where it's very hard to study (laughs) your family and share that in scholarship and in different forums that way. So I wanted to learn about other cultures and different peoples, and I was really drawn to African studies because as an undergraduate, there were some awesome opportunities to study abroad in Senegal, and I loved learning different languages like French and then later being um, attracted to uh, indigenous languages and in Africa, West Africa, like Yoruba and Wolof. And so I worked on my master's first in African history. And I was interested in parallels and comparisons with Navajo history um, and boarding school experiences and efforts to assimilate people and contexts of colonialism. But I had another calling back home and to my people and community, um, family, 
And that's what took me on this journey to write the book, The Earth Memory Compass, Deneh Landscapes and Education in the 20th Century. So it sounds like the core or the seed, I guess, of this book was planted pretty early on in your life. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all the stories I grew up with. I grew up yeah. with these stories, but learning more along the way. And mm-hmm. I'm still learning more and more. It's so um, exciting. In the preface, I think even on the first or second page of the book, you describe it as an autoethnography, which is a term that I love and that I'd never heard of before. Can you tell us what that means and how uh, it fits for this book? Sure. I didn't realize that I was doing autoethnography either. (laughs) I just was doing it, you know. I I have a good friend. He's great. Um, I've mentioned him to to you before, and he might know if he he listens to this, who I'm talking about, but and others too. But he's he's native. He's a um, Mandan Hadatsa, and he jokes that he's like, hey, my research is I just go talk to my family and that's it. It's easy, you know, (laughs) but it's actually I find hard and I know it is hard to go and talk to your family and explore. It's basically autoethnography is where you're exploring your own personal experiences and looking at yourself, right? That's the autobiographical connection there of your examining your life, your experiences, you're kind of using yourself as the case study. And you're using that to relate to and illuminate um, larger cultural dynamics. So that's the autoethnographic side to it. And, and the combination of it being autoethnography is how you bring out, you bring in these um autobiographical cases, like your own life cases and using them, connecting them rather to larger dynamics in society, history, and uh, cultural studies. Let's start, as we start to get into the book a little more in depth, why don't we begin with the title? Can you just explain to us what the Earth Memory Compass is? Sure. I had to do that before. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. Um, It is a term that I have created, and I was heavily influenced by my mentor, Dr. Don Fixico, as in our conversations about it, because I wanted to call it the the Earth um, Compass, was I was struck by how Navajos as a people, as I was trying to look, as I said, the autoethnographic approach, trying to look into my own identity, sense of self-identity, and that connection to other Diné and my relatives and such, I wanted to know, you know, what makes us a people, what connects us? And I kept being directed to the earth. And that was also from the influence of my elders, like um, Albert who I've brought up and it's the idea as I framed it. Right. And I, I, it's a hybrid approach as well that I talk about where I'm referring to ancestral Diné teachings, but also trying to communicate and provide a metaphor and analogy. Language is often what I refer to it as that different audiences and people from different backgrounds can understand. And why I think the Earth Memory Compass is like a language is that languages are very layered. There's a superficial layer level to it. And then more intricate, deeper understandings of language and the epistemologies connected to it, right? And history that's embedded in it. But the Earth Memory Compass, how I define that is I explain to people Um, It is the knowledge, language, ancestral Diné teachings that are embedded, right? They are um, instilled and connected to the earth and landscapes that are seen. They can be seen as sacred spaces, of course, but they have these intricate layers of meaning to them and memories that's where that came in was memories is a central part of that knowledge that's connected to those spaces. Um, Those who are familiar with Keith Basso's work, wisdom sits in places has also a similar approach to that idea that um, there are memories connected to a space, but it's 
those memories and that knowledge and understanding, the different levels of understanding that then connect Diné as a people, that they recognize each other as Diné, that we recognize each other as such. But we can relate to that knowledge and those understandings differently, right? At, at what what our progress is in life, you know, what, what our stage is in life and our exposure and um, our own Diné education, right, that, that we receive. And I, I can get into a specific example about that is I begin my book with an example of how my father... Um, he would sing to us in Diné Bazaar and sing a song that as children, we didn't, we weren't taught Navajo as a first language. Our mother is not Navajo, did not know the language. And she was home much with us, you know, and we didn't speak Navajo at home. I'd hear my dad speaking it to all my paternal relatives. But um, my dad, though, he would sing in Navajo and sing a song, particularly in moments of honoring and I didn't know what he was singing, but we knew it was honoring. And we would, you know, start to recognize the same repeated words or terms that we didn't know what they meant. And later, as I started actually studying through scholarship and then talking to family and relatives more and, and being with them, um, I learned that he was singing about the four sacred mountains and the four directions and a song um, that encapsulates the earth memory compass. It's a form that the earth memory compass, it's like this compass through the directions that are shared in it that guide Dene to a sense of common peoplehood, of that connectivity as a people is what I'm trying to say. And so later I'm starting to understand more of that language and the levels of it. And there are certain levels that are not to be shared openly and without proper authority and protocol. And I'm very sensitive to that, right? That um, I won't be privy to, and I don't have the right authority, but certain Dene people who have proper authority recognized by the people and also spiritual ways of life, they will, but to give at least a basic um, and honestly, you know, a superficial but significant understanding of what this, what these teachings mean and what these landscapes mean. The landscapes represent the teachings, and they're that that compass, that guide for Dene in um, ways of living and ways of being that at least allow us to connect as a people and to our heritage and ancestors through different generations. Yeah. And the book itself, I have one last kind of methodological question. The book itself also is structured uniquely. Yeah. It's structured around this idea of the earth memory compass, yes. as you just described it. Can you tell us a bit about that structure and why you opted to structure the book itself this way? Sure. So even if you look at the cover it's a great and, cover, by the way. Thanks, Sorry to interrupt. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> really I mean, pretty, I, yeah. I say look at that cover because it's right there, too, that the organization, everything mm -hmm. is by the four mountains, the four directions. So there are more directions, too, and more sacred mm -hmm. mountains and spaces to Navajos. But um, as you learn as Diné, Navajos learned a philosophy and a central way of being, which is San Nagaibik Ehajon. Um, it can't be translated and outside of Navajo, really, other than there's efforts to explain this means to walk in beauty, um, to live to old age on the, the beauty path and to live in a ideal, seek an ideal of having harmony and beauty in all things, live a good life in a sense. Um, and the way to live that way, to walk a life through that way is through the teachings of, of the four directions and, and the different directions, but primarily Navajo's focus on the four, beginning with, and then south, west, north. And uh, to Diné, there are sacred mountains that are correlate with these directions, that the mountain to the east, right, and the mountain to the south, mountain to the south, uh, Zodzith, 
is Mount Taylor. And it means a lot to me because that's where my family is from that area around New Mexico. And when I see that mountain driving in, I know I'm home. And Diné are taught, you know, these four mountains, they have their Diné names. They also have, you know, anglicized names that are recognized on uh, Eurocentric maps. But in a Diné map, they they have these different meanings. Um, and Navajos know that these four mountains mark our homelands, Diné Bikeya, our home and our refuge where we are told we are blessed and to live as a people. And that's the central part of our indigeneity, of, of our being that, that that's our home. And for me, this is really significant because I lived away from the four mountains, right? And I lived in the city. I've lived a lot of different places. I live in Oklahoma right now. But I know when I see Zodzif that I'm going home. And it also these mountains and the directions correspond with an intellectual process that Navajos have relied on, turned to since time immemorial, that they had even, you know, prepare a party, as Lucy Tapahanso says in her awesome A Radiant Curve, they would prepare um, the first laugh party by going east, south, west, north, and in that those directions, they would... Uh, Big, big horse, the warrior, they would eat their cereal, uh, I mean, their food going in the four directions. So there's all um, these connections of the four directions. I wanted to structure the book to have an understanding myself, try to come to my own understanding of these four directions under the umbrella, the theme of Diné schooling experiences from the 1930s until about 1990. That I had a, that specific time frame because that's when most Navajos were going to school is in the really the pre um, the post World War II era. You had as many as uh, 75% of Navajo school age children were not going to school in 1946. And this was um, then changed dramatically after the war of intensifying these programs, advancing them to send Navajo children to school. And they had off-reservation schools, but also on-reservation schools. And that, that intrigued me and made me curious because most people, they focus on the off-reservation schools and they think those are the distant schooling that separate the families and the children. But on reservation schools, you know, within or close to the four sacred mountains, right? The uh, in Dene Bikeya, those also created walls and barriers between Dene community and the children. And we're trying to target in many ways and disintegrate Diné ties to their homeland and those teachings. Um, but I was seeing how Diné students navigated that and in a way were able to still find ways to access or reconnect, reclaim the um, Diné earth memory compass. And that idea of reclaiming, I was really um, shaped and touched by Jennifer Nez Dale's work, reclaiming the history of uh, thinking about how Navajos had and are still in a process of reclaiming these ancestral teachings, uh, even though there are moments of strain and even rupture at times. Well, let's get into the the, the structure of the book a little bit then. And uh, chapter one is based around East. So tell us first about what East means and what it represents and just kind of more generally about the importance of Diné teaching early in people's lives, both throughout Navajo history and today as well. Yeah. The East is very important, the um, ha'a'a, because that's where we, we begin with a prayer. We start with opening it up and that really shaped me because I was trying to think, you know, how do I start this off, right? We're always thinking the beginning's so significant. In, mm -hmm. in Diné ways, it's the birth. And so I wanted to think about um, explaining and really conveying to 
different audiences, what Diné valued, what kind of, um, we might refer to them as traditional teachings, but I say ancestral teachings because they're tied to many generations past. It's like an ancestry there. And so I looked into different ways um, that Navajos had taught their children, even from an early age, thinking about also birth from birth, how um, Navajo mothers would sing these songs about the four directions about land uh, to their babies in their belly before they were born and the processes of when they're born, talking about that connection with the umbilical cord and how even those first years before ever going to any school, there was a major uh, imprint and teaching happening uh, in families and in Diné communities. So that's something that I really wanted to emphasize with the beginning and also explaining uh, Diné values and teachings like because you have to understand that um, before really gauging and, and sensing what Diné youth go through and experienced in the on-reservation boarding schools. Can you tell us who Hopi Hopi was and how his story exemplifies um, the strength and power of Navajo knowledge and of the Earth Memory Compass? Sure. I'm glad you brought up Hopi Hopi because that's an example that I bring in the beginning of the book. Um, since I just came across his oral history, I know other scholars have uh, cited his oral history before, but I wanted to delve more into Hopi Hopi's story. That's what um, they called him because he was as fast running as the Hopi who hmm. the Navajos respected for their speed and agility. And um, he was sent to a boarding school, um, Santa Fe Indian School, and he was from the Tohatchi area. And this was the early 20th century. When he was being interviewed, he, he could have been in his 70s or such. So the, the exact dates aren't precise, but it's a sense of that time, early 20th century being sent to um, a boarding school in New Mexico, but, you know, miles, many, many miles away from his home. And Hopi Hopi shares a story about how he decided to escape and find his way home with a couple of friends. And he, you know, they didn't have GPS then. He didn't <laughs> know. He didn't have a map drawn out or anything. But he was preparing for this escape. And he was practicing swimming because they knew they had to cross a river. And so he does escape with the friends. They're hunted by hounds. And it's really this um, elaborate story about his escape. But where I feature it, in a different way, is something he said stuck out to me in his interview. And it is hard because all we have or all I could have accessed was his interview in English that was translated. So the transcript and also um, the interviewee, Tom Ration, he did a lot of these interviews for the Doris Duke project. And he was a Diné elder. So I know he was originally speaking in Navajo, Um so he, I wonder, you know, to this day, I'm like, what was he saying in Navajo? Because it makes a difference. This language mm -hmm. was a central part as well with the methodology of working through these different languages. Um, but in English, the translation said that he said something to the effect of, I knew my way home. I knew it by the sky and the land, the earth. Like he said that basically. And that resonated with me because he shares this journey going miles in to him, you know, foreign country, trying to find his way home. But he knew enough about the landscapes, the skies, and that was literally his compass and his map planted those memories shared to him in the years that he had before going to boarding school from his people, from his family, um, that he knew how to find his way home from a boarding school that was trying to assimilate and take apart his Diné identity and replace that, you know, with you're an integrated American working citizen, or in some cases, a second secondary citizen, right? So that really um, helped me to frame the book in, in what I saw with Hopi Hopi's journey 
of how he really used the land and those teachings that he received to um, to hybridize and take from, you know, he did learn something in the boarding school, but it didn't replace those teachings, right? They just, it, it became a greater, um, a greater knowledge for him to have, but it's not that he forgot or um, let go of those teachings. He held on to those to find his way home and to return home. Yeah, it's a really wonderful story and one that, at least for me as a reader, really clarified what the Earth Memory Compass mm. was and what you're trying to do more broadly in the book as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. Chapter two is uh, about the South. It's called South. Mm -hmm. And it is, among other things, about American schooling and how whites attempted to use education to undo the kind of bonds of Diné language that you're talking about. So could you tell us a bit about education and schooling in and around the Navajo Reservation in the Southwest and also how former students remembered their years at boarding and reservation schools? Yes, those themes came out, especially in the um, second chapter, that for that Mm -hmm. one, I see it as the adolescent stage, right? That's the Mm -hmm. summer of our lives, the youth who are exploring, and you face a lot of challenges and a lot of um, mixed directions that they can take. And that's a part of what I was trying to um, share with readers was starting off with the 1930s, like even 1920s, trying to understand how these um, schools were set up on um, Bikeya, uh, the Navajo land, how they were set up and how um, they were designed by U.S. federal officials such as John Collier, who it was a major shift that he led in Indian policy away from uh, the days when boarding schools under Richard Henry Pratt's, you know, infamous model now of kill the Indian and him save the man. And it was uh, very clearly an effort to eradicate indigenous identity. Uh, John Collier, who leads in a lot of uh, the educational initiatives in um, during the time of the New Deal, you know, right interwar period, as he says, no, it's great. Let's teach Indians to be Indians. But then I complicate that, even though there's a shift, because it's still, okay, is this a, a filtered sense of Indian? Who decides what is, quote, Indian, you know, and, and a sort of this sanitized sense of Indianness at the schools that he prepares? But it is, it is a shift, and it's also an introduction to more of these um, schools being built that I wanted to, I wanted to explain that and give examples of um, what the students were experiencing in classes, in the curriculum, and in life. Then also um, with the South, since as I shared, Zodzith and that area is important to me, this is the um, part of the book where we start to focus on communities, specific Diné communities that I've worked with. And I met with their um, chapter communities where they come together and they go over, you know, local affairs and issues. And I had to present myself to them as a scholar and also as I did with you all, a Diné woman um, of mixed ancestry to share, you know, what am I doing? I want to start um, working with oral history. So to talk to folks about their experiences directly and their memories. And I did that with um, four different communities, but uh, three are particularly featured in, in the chapters following the first chapter. And Crown Point, New Mexico, the way that I decided on the communities to work with was I was thinking about when I'm going in these different directions that are towards the sacred mountains, Zodzif is not far from Crown Point. On your way there, you see it. And that's also, as I said, where my relatives and my clan are um, heavily based and, and have a presence. And so uh, reaching out to that community, people were related to me, you know, and I recognized that. And I started to interview some of my relatives, cousins, for example, who went to the Crown Point Indian Boarding School. And so that pushed me to also think about and try and understand intergenerational ties to these specific boarding schools like Crown Point and to share that in the book 
And with Crown Point, it, it complicated the boarding school narrative too, because mm-hmm. people um, have at this point more of a very negative approach to it for good reason. When I went to Crown Point, the community were very um, adamant that I recognize the school was claimed as their own in certain cases, and it meant a lot to them. And they had positive experiences there too. And they were not only, they were not victims. They don't want to be seen only as victims. And that's something that came through in that talking to my family, talking to community members. And I start to introduce those um, intricacies of boarding school experiences, such as those at Crown Point Indian School. Yeah, that was one of, uh, I thought, one of the biggest takeaways of the book for me Mm -hmm. is that it's possible to paint with too broad a brush, even about Mm -hmm. things that can, in fact, be very traumatic, like the boarding school experience, that there are there are complications within that particular narrative as well. Um, Mm -hmm. That was that was fascinating, fascinating Mm -hmm. part of the book to me. Yeah. And with Ina, um, Ina May Ansi, she was a teacher there, Laguna um, and Oneida, I believe. And she had worked there for over 30 years. Um, They honored her. She was, you know, an indigenous teacher there that students remembered. I had cousins who remembered her. And my uncle Albert, he was her teacher who went on to be a co-talker. And, you know, she taught generations and they saw her as a matriarch. They saw Mm -hmm. her as a mother. And so, yeah, it complicates the stories of teachers who were only punishing students, did not care for them, you know, which there were teachers like that. I'm not denying that. But then there were also those like Ina May Ansi, who left a a very powerful and meaningful um, impression and, and legacy on the community. Right. In Chapter 3, West, you describe the loop incident and its place in Diné memory. Can you describe what happened and how this incident has been interpreted and remembered differently by different people and its significance and the sensitivity surrounding it a little bit? Sure. Um, this was the hardest part of the book. I felt like this case... Um, Even the people kind of, they called to me, and I might sound crazy saying that, but I felt very impressed that I needed to share this. And why um, is because of the ramifications, the impacts that happened. Um, The loop incident is what the federal government files call what happened in the 1950s. I changed names of um, under a, you know, the children who are involved in this case, but um, an epidemic broke out, a flu epidemic broke out in the Loop Indian boarding school. I situate the history of this boarding school, um, which other scholars are also working on. Uh, A wonderful friend of mine and scholar, Davina Two Bears, is writing about Loop, a more intricate history of that boarding school that dates back, you know, to the early years of Indian boarding schools and uh, assimilation efforts. But um, Loop even became the boarding school there. It became a detention camp for Japanese internees uh, during the war. And then after that, they uh, return it, change it back into a boarding school, though much smaller than its earlier days. And it's in that time period that um, a, the flu breaks out and a young girl, only five years old, is found dead. And then an investigation that even involves the FBI follows. And the community is in uproar, had been in uproar, not just at that point of the case, but there was tension between the community and the school officials, uh, especially the principal there. And they were trying to fire him, you know, have him ousted um, and accusing him of various uh, issues and grievances that he was causing. And then this death of a young girl happens. And when there's an investigation into it, they find that she was beaten. And that led to her death. Um, probably in combination with her with her sickness, her ailment. And local newspapers, even state newspapers, share that it was um, actually a couple other girls who were eight years old who beat up this little five-year-old girl. 
And why I share this and explore this is that the West, A-A-A, it's about enough. It's about life and about coming to maturity, coming to old age. And here was a girl, her life was taken. But this time of maturity among Navajos, when there are more Navajos going to school and they're starting to get a sense of what is this schooling about? What is this you know, structure about? Um, there's an awakening too for them, an eye, an eye opening of these schools are not our schools. They, even though they're right there, you know, Loop Indian School, you can see the sacred mountain of the West, Dick Oslid. You can see it on the grounds, and they were not learning those teachings about Ina and the children. You know, even are hurting each other, and that's something that came out. In talking to my relatives, in talking to my father, of how fellow Dene hurt each other and the lateral violence that happens um, in these systems. So it's very, it is difficult to talk about, but I did reach out to Loop and um, Bird Springs chapter is also uh, involved in that and telling them this is why I felt we need to share it because after that event, they did open up a new school, um, little singer school, named after a hatafle, as some say medicine man in English, right, um, of translation, the healer, who said, we need a school that prioritizes and upholds Dene values and teachings and start to claim, you know, reclaim our education too. And in the book, um, you provide a number of pictures of the site and other yeah. things as well. But it really is striking yeah. how this site really is in the shadow of this mountain, yes. really, as well. It's it's right there. So that was the, it illustrated the point you're trying to make very well. Yeah. And that's where I talked to um, a former student. And she shared with me, um, she shared with me her time then she went to that school and how she was sick and felt lonely and missed home. And there was such a cutoff from the teachings, you know, of her family and such. But then she went on to become a Dene language teacher and teaching about the, the four mountains and the four directions in loop. And that to me, you know, that was, that's just like Hopi Hopi coming home. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The Navajo Reservation had a busing crisis like many other education systems across North America during the 1960s and 1970s, although this one was of a different kind than some of the more famous ones that might come to mind, such as Boston, for instance. Can you tell us a little bit about busing in this part of North America and why it mattered and what the contours of the controversy were? Sure. Um As I said, my family have been living and connecting with the Monument Valley and also known as the Ojeto community in uh, southeastern Utah. And that's where I came across and started talking to people about um, how they didn't have a boarding school or really a school that the community were um, turning to for their children when it became a requirement to send your child and there was high pressures to send your child children to school, like a good friend of ours, Jesse Holiday, you know, the he told about. I'm pretty sure BIA officials or some folks. He said came over, said send your child to school. Or we're going to arrest you. So those kind of threats. But then because there wasn't a school nearby, this community was forced basically to send their children to boarding schools that were pretty far. There was Kayenta boarding school, but still for them, you know, I was just struck by how it's a, that wall, a barrier ongoing between communities. So then um, later in the 20th century, as the busing issues for integration is happening throughout the country, um, there were calls to have busing of these Navajo school age students, uh, especially high schoolers in the Monument Valley area to go to uh, a border town, a town that, you know, was close to the border of Dene Bikeya, um, the reservation, I mean, uh, Blanding. 
and to send them to school there in Blanding, Utah. And students started to be bused um, hundred over a hundred miles a day. You know, it's um, about an hour and a half in, and that's from accessible roads. I find people live spread out. They live on mesas. They live on areas that don't have paved roads even, mm-hmm. you know, it's very difficult to even get to the main highways. And they had to somehow in the darkness, coldness, and it gets cold there in winter. You can have heavy snow. They put their children in danger, you know, they ha- their children were in danger at times to try and get to these buses to then be bused over an hour to get to school and they were on buses, you know, many hours if you calculate it a year. And this impact was very negative on the students that they started to be tired, exhausted. And so then there was a struggle by um, really pushed by community and also allies who supported it to build a school that um, was open a day school, really, on in Monument Valley. And this was all behind the Sinigini case that I talk about in the book. But I try to focus especially on the students' perspectives and their stories of this experience. Because there's others like um, Donna Diley. She um, she writes about the, the busing in depth and has done large survey and analysis. But I wanted to hear what were the experiences of students who rode those buses? What did they think about it? Um, how they might have been involved or not with the push to have a school built. And they had to struggle uh, against the state of Utah that kept trying to um, say or claim that the school was not their responsibility. Navajo schools were not their responsibility. That was the federal government's. And that case was won in the favor of the Monument Valley community. And there were others. They were not alone. There were other communities in southeastern Utah, also Navajo Mountain. These struggles continue of the struggles over accessibility to education and quality education. They still are on, they're ongoing. So um, starting to examine that, that related to what I saw as the North and also a coming full cycle um, with this journey of coming to reflection, faith, hope, prayers, because there was a lot of hope that Navajos were then able to be a part, try to form a partnership of developing their own school with self-determined indigenous sovereign education that valued Diné education and community input. But how that plays out, you know, that's a still another story and journey that's unfolding at this time and these different tensions and dynamics that are happening. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. Is that that's another question that I had? Is this is a very present-minded book, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, particularly towards the end, you talk about the state of education on the Navajo Reservation today. Can you tell us a little bit about what the strengths of education mm-hmm. in uh, in the Southwest are today, and what challenges still remain for Diné people in terms of schooling and education more broadly? Sure. So. When I come to Full Cycle, why I think it was um, just great to focus on this community engagement and grassroots movements is it shows that this wasn't, uh, I know I want to give a close-up lens and view to it, but it's happening in other areas is what I was trying to say. In Rama and Rough Rock, right? There's a famous Rough Rock demonstration school that was a bilingual Navajo school, and Navajos are leading in self-determined education with the formation and establishment of Diné College, formerly the Navajo Community College, that Mm -hmm. has as a central part of their curriculum and education the four directions. So they are leading in indigenizing schooling and reclaiming education and pushing for the controls and community involvement and, you know, this, um, this connection between community, even after all these other examples and struggles and tensions that are happening over who controls the education of the future of Diné, especially in these cases. Um, so to the present, though, there still are challenges, um, even though they're 
is now a more common consensus and, and support, not just within the net community, but even from allies and other communities, friends, peoples who are so supportive of uh, Diné education. I've just been astounded by uh, the the diverse peoples I've met who are supportive. And you have uh, strong Diné language programs at some schools. There's uh, a Diné immersion school in the Winter Rock area in Fort Defiance, um, even in Flagstaff, Arizona, Puente de Hajo has uh, Diné immersion programs. And um, in Albuquerque, there's a Native American Community Academy, different programs happening with self-determined education and, and indigenous sovereign education that uh, are continuing to this day. And it's very exciting to see that blossom. Even when I was in the Phoenix area, there's uh, Navajo community and community language classes and lessons for those who are not um, very close to Diné Bikeya. Um, so it's growing and the different resources and technologies that you can access on internet, on devices, on apps. It's wonderful. Navajo toddler. My children are learning a lot. So there's just great collaborations happening and great work. It's really exciting. But one thing that still is a worry and a concern is that there's ongoing struggles over standardization of education, over um, community connection and engagement. And those are things that I do raise in the chapter about Monument Valley and Ojato community is even after they build this um, school that has, that launches um, programs and Diné culture and studies and language, um, there's still struggles of Students feeling, is this a quality education? Are they being prepared? And so some still will send their children to border town dormitories for school. There's needs still for boarding schools. And what happens you know, when you're away from your family and your community? And, and how do those communications work between the school staff and the programs and what's happening? And there's shifts, exciting shifts, but you know, it, it, we're not sure yet what's going to happen and we're hopeful. And it's a matter of following up with these shifts of BIE schools. You know, is Navajo Nation going to gain control of them? And what does it mean to have these hybridized um, new forms of education where they have connections to schools that were established by the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and other organizations, but then um then they have people claiming them for themselves and shaping them. What do they shape them into? What do they become? So these mm -hmm. are the questions that are really open and a lot of Diné people are concerned about and talking about. But it's across the board. Many Diné people have always recognized, and that's where they, they take the motto of uh, crediting, crediting it to Chief Manuelito, Manuelito, um, not Ani, Manuelito, of uh, education is the ladder we need to teach our people to take it and that education is widely valued and the communities are trying to support it but to what extent and how that relationship looks like and what's happening that's still being forged in many ways what is it like writing and autoethnography. What was the experience of writing a book that is about the past but as we just said a couple minutes ago is very present-minded and also very personal many tears and joys and laughs and good times. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really, it was, but I think it made me nervous at first. Um, and that's why I even feel like I was prolonging it <laughs> by exploring African studies. But I think that helped me to have a fresh view on myself and my community and family and people, because um, something important to understand is even families, we can have our internal um, conflicts and tensions and perspectives, right? We all have different perspectives and views. So I am trying the best to navigate how I'm seen as representative, but I'm not, you know, and mm -hmm. why this work is still valuable even if it isn't a full survey of all Diné perspectives, I want to share this perspective. And I think it is it is worth looking into, of course, um, sharing this story that I hope can help bridge different peoples 
and especially Diné peoples who I found many people didn't even know we existed, didn't know about us. And these, what I was trying to emphasize too is how um, it's so connected to people's lives and their quality of life um, that you might be familiar with struggles and contestations over lands to this day, like Bears Ears and um, Dakota Access Pipeline relating to other indigenous communities. And uh, today, on well, Friday, we may not be today then, <laughs> on Friday, um, January 18th, there is the Indigenous March in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., and different peoples coming together because um, the histories and experiences of settler colonialism and these dynamics they are still hurting our people to this day and but we're still here and still trying doing our best to thrive have hope and living beautiful lives i see my family living beautiful lives but there are dark sides to that too and when i'm trying to meet so many different people and share that understanding, I see sometimes light in their eyes, like they are starting to understand because I share my story. Yeah. Uh, My guests always tell me that they can't stand this question that I'm about to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I can't, I can't help myself. Is there, is there a singular lesson or a message that you hope readers come away with? And I know that's a broad question, but I feel like it usually draws out uh, some sort of nice summary of the book. So what do you think? For me, it was, I want people to understand that for indigenous peoples, the land is so central. The homeland mm-hmm. is so central to who we are. It is a part of us. And we have to relearn that too. All of us. Everyone. Even mm-hmm. me. I've had to relearn that. Of what the land means to me and my ancestors before me. That it's a part of our, our family and who we are. And I'm trying to share how that is in the Earth Memory Compass. And through stories of education where that really comes out where you can really trace that. So I know that this book has only been out for something like 150 days or so, (laughs) but despite that, do you have any idea of what you're going to be working on next? Do you have another project or another set of stories that you'd like to tell that might be in the not too distant future? Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) I do. (laughs) I'm working on a a couple projects. Um, One is a collaborative project with Dr. Mike Taylor and Dr. James Swenson about um, the Inner Mountain Indian School, which was the largest federal Indian boarding school in the United States, arguably, with over 2,000 students at a time. And I do mention it and refer to it in the Earth Memory Compass, um, mm-hmm. that it was an off-reservation boarding school in Brigham City, Utah, that opened in 1950 specifically for Navajos, for the Diné. And this book is a bit different, but connected to this work of um, exploring the next student ongoing connections and ties with their homelands and people, and specifically how they are still contributing and sustaining um, those ties with their people through their creative works, through their creative expressions, like arts poetry, writings, writing songs, um, even the crafts that they made. And Alan Hauser, who was um, uh, Chiricahua Apache, was there as an art instructor. And I talked to several students who worked with him. And I talked to students with my first project who had connections to Intermountain. I have some relatives who had connections, though not as many close relatives. Um, And so many went to Intermountain while it was open from 1950 to 1984. The last 10 years, it was open to tribal nations from throughout the country. So that's uh, a specific phase in the time. But we're focusing specifically on Diné student experiences to start off with its early period and why um, students went there. But um, examining their arts and their creative expressions as, as a key source, too, along with the oral histories that I'm doing and the stories that I'm, I'm weaving together with them. Um, and this was a request from the Navajo Intermountain Indian alumni um, 
because we are launching an exhibit first that will feature the arts and poetry of the students and go to Navajo Nation, specifically uh, Monument Valley, and eventually to the Navajo Nation Museum in, in this coming year. So I'm very excited for that. We will hope to broadcast more about it, so look out for it. But it's to mm-hmm. return. It's called Returning Home Inner Mountain because a lot of these student express, creative expressions have been kept um, stored in archives and collections, but less accessible to the community and um, even the former students themselves and their descendants. And I talked to um, one student recently um, who told me, he said, and I, I just am not sharing names because, you know, I do know their names just because we're on radio and I want to be sure yeah, I have the right com- permissions and such. Yeah. But um, he said that he wanted his people and his children to know that he was a writer. He is. He, he reaffirmed that, that he is a writer. He is a poet. Though he went on to have um, vocational training in as electrician. You know, some of them went into plumbing and different things. But these were important parts of their story, too. So um, that's a up-and-coming, exciting project we're working on. Sounds like you're going to be busy yeah. in the next uh, months and years. Thanks. <laughs> yep, yep. It's good. Dr. Farina King is assistant professor of history at Northeastern State University, and her new book is The Earth Memory Compass, Diné Landscapes and Education in the 20th Century, which is just out this past October in 2018 from the University of Kansas Press. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Farina. Thank you for having me. Ahiehet. As we say, thank you. Walk in beauty. Ahiehet. 